Welcome to Integrated Brain Health. My name is Dr. Robert Coben. I'm a clinical neuropsychologist and am board certified in QEG technology and neuromodulation. This is our Neuroscience Rounds podcast. You will get a glimpse into our training programs where we talk about neuroscience, technology, neurofeedback, neuropsychology, and other related matters. We hope this helps with your knowledge base and ability to intervene and help patients successfully. On to the podcast. Okay, welcome to NeuroRounds. This is round 11. We'll be talking about sleep today. Okay, so sleep is assessed with EEG. Uh, here we're all fairly familiar with EEG. Um, you put a cap on, electrodes are on the, the head, usually according to the 1020 um, system, and then it reads off uh, brain activity. There are, and it records um, activity from neuro neuronal ensembles, um, extracellular current flow, and there are certain uh, band, wings, uh, band wavelengths that we usually see, uh, beta, which is 13 to 32 hertz, um, and that's when you're awake, alert, and conscious. You have alpha uh, from 8 to 13, and it's kind of when you're chill, you're awake, uh, but you're uh, relaxed. You have theta, which is 4 to 8 hertz, and it's kind of deep meditation. Um, also dreams, uh, well, deep states of kind of relaxation. And then delta, which is deep sleep, um, loss of body awareness. In sleep, these are the kind of stages that we move through. So um, at first, we are relaxed wakefulness and at alpha. Then we go into stage one, where we start seeing these theta peaks here. As you go deeper into sleep, you go into stage two. You start seeing sleep spindles and K complexes. You go into stage three and four, you get these uh, delta slow waves. This is your kind of very deep, restful sleep. And then what happens is you go back into REM, and the REM uh, wavelengths kind of look, look like alpha waves, but you are asleep and dreaming here. When you sleep, you go through cycles through each stage. So this is wakefulness, and then stage one, two, three, and four. Um, at the beginning of your sleep, you have more time and slow wave sleep. It's the, the deep uh, delta waves. And you go up and spend some time in REM, and then back down, you cycle through each stage. And then as you go through the night, you spend more time in REM sleep and less time in deep uh, slow wave sleep. Um, also, you make major positional adjustments about every 20 minutes, so you're not motionless, even though usually your brain does uh, make, uh, paralyze your, your skeletal muscles when you're in REM sleep. Usually, but sometimes not. We'll talk about a, that case a little bit later. So um, I'm going to talk a little bit about deep uh, delta slow wave sleep, stages three and four. Um, the amount of this you get is usually impacted by um, how long you've been awake. So the longer you've been awake, the more you'll have deep slow wave sleep. This is correlated to how uh, rested you feel when you wake up. So you feel more rested when you've had more deep uh, delta sleep. Um, age affects the amount of delta slow wave sleep that you get. Um, it um, declines as you get older, and sometimes it might even disappear in your 70s. Um, it, so you spend, what happens is they spend more time in the lighter stages of sleep, and so they're more easily aroused. Uh, they're also less able to reset their circadian rhythms, so they're more, they suffer from uh, more intense jet lag, it's harder to reset from jet lag. And then they shift from the one night sleep to a shorter night sleep, and then a nap in the afternoon, like this gentleman here. 
Uh, REM sleep, um, again, this is when your motor cortex is very highly active, uh, but the brainstem uh, typically blocks activity and it paralyzes your skeletal muscles. Um, excluded from this are your eyes because REM stands for rapid eye movement sleep, so they're moving around. Um, respiration because it's important to breathe. And then also your middle ear ossicles, so you can still um, hear. Uh, the pontine geniculate occipital spikes um, happens, and it, it, this is kind of the phasic regulator. So it kind of does the pacemaker of making you cycle through those sleep stages, and it triggers REM sleep. Alcohol and barbiturates uh, seem to repress REM sleep. So if you drink a lot, you go to sleep, but you don't enter into REM stages, so your sleep isn't as productive. Uh, just like stage three and four, deep uh, sleep, slow wave sleep, REM changes as you age. For um, infants that are born 10 weeks premature, 80% of their sleep is REM sleep. If they're born two to four weeks premature, 60% is REM sleep. Full term, about 50% of the normal 16 hour day sleeping is REM. When they're two years old, it goes to 30, 35%. And then from 10 years old and older, it's about 20 to 25% of your sleep is REM sleep. So I wanna talk a little bit about dreams. Dreams occur in REM sleep. Um, there are a lot of different theories about what dreams mean. So of course we have to talk about Freud, uh, who published on dreaming. Um, he thought that dreams were symbolic and reflected um, repressed, repressed longing and unconscious wishes. It's kind of a safety valve where you can express uh, taboo or unacceptable wishes or urges. Um, Carl Jung uh, studied under Freud, but he thought that dreams allowed us to reflect on our waking selves and to process and uh, solve problems. And that leads us to uh, information processing theory, which um, is a theory that you kind of use dreams to help sort through the day's events, helps you deal with uh, dealing with stress in everyday life. It's also uh, probably used for memory consolidation, to unpack and reshuffle information that you've had throughout the day. Um, but perhaps uh, the simplest explanation is the activation synthesis theory. And this is um, the theory that REM causes a bunch of random activation in your brain. And your brain is a sense-making machine. So what it's trying to do is make sense of the, acti of the activity, but it doesn't make sense because it's random. So that's why your dreams are kind of crazy because it's not supposed to make sense, but your brain wants it to make sense. Um, so why do we sleep anyway? There's a lot of theories on this as well. Um, one is that is a physiological necessity. So the more you're sleep deprived, you'll have more REM rebound. You also see this with um, slow and slow wave and deep sleep. So the longer you go without sleep, you'll have more REM and more slow wave sleep and less of the shallower kinds of sleep. Um, there's also a developmental theory in that it helps to develop your neural circuitry. So as you saw in the previous slide, uh, preemies and babies have a lot more of their sleep in REM than we do as an adults. And this kind of mirrors or approximates myelination and brain development. So the thought is that this kind of helps the brain develop um, in getting this uh, networks going. And it's also when the brain releases uh, the most part of the human growth hormone, which is important for babies and growing. Um, Another idea is that it's analogous to exercise. So the brain consumes more oxygen during REM than when you're doing physical exercise or mental exercise. So uh, the thank you is again kind of the brain exercising, getting its self um, developed. Um, one, another theory is that it just kind of evolved for preservation. 
So we're kind of a squishy species, right? So we don't have you know shell or armor or fangs or claws or anything. And so lots of other predators do. So as we were evolving, it makes sense for us to kind of, when we can't see as well at night, go hide in a cave when there were like, I don't know, saber-toothed cats and stuff prowling around. So it's better for us to conserve energy and just kind of hunker down when it's dark outside to avoid the predators out there. Um, another one is recuperation. So again, uh, during REM, we see a lot of memory consolidation. So there was a study where they had mice navigate a maze and they recorded their brain activity when they were going through the maze. Um, and then as they slept that night, they saw a similar pattern of activation um, that followed the same pattern where they were kind of going through the maze again. So they were thinking this is when the mice were consolidating the memories of how to get through the maze. Um, so the study tip here is that, and this is what I used also when I was studying for the GRE, is when you go through flashcards or study, take a nap after that. Try to relax, make sure it kind of gets nice and consolidated in there so you can remember the information better. And this is also when the brain does a lot of maintenance, so you kind of remove a lot of the um, brain cells and debris in this uh, cerebral spinal fluid during the sleep. Um, the more you sleep, the less chance of Alzheimer's you have. Um, also, there's a lot of um, substances that are related to inducing sleep in your brain. Um, also uh, lead to trigger uh, immune responses. So a lot of recuperation or intergeneration uh, is going on in your sleep as well. Okay, so I'm gonna talk about Zeitgebers. Um, so German word of the day, it means time giver. So this is seemingly that um, entrain your internal circadian rhythm to the 24 hour day. So things like the sun, your alarm clock, regular work and meal habits, noise or silence, all these kinds of things, train your body, kind of give you cues as to when it's time to wake up and when it's time to go to sleep. Um, in the absence of any Zeitgebers, um, like I said, light, dark, temperature changes, social cues, and knowledge of time, most people shift to a 25-hour circadian rhythm. Uh, there have been some that have been gone as long as 33, but about three-fourths of the population have a natural 25-hour uh, circadian rhythm. So speaking of these Zeitgebers, we talked a little bit last week about, uh, we talked about the hypothalamus, about the suprachiasmatic nucleus and its role in the production of melatonin. So just to review, uh, the suprachiasmatic nucleus seems to be the home of our circadian rhythm. What happens is light hits the retina, goes in the optic nerve, retino um, hypothalamic tract to the pineal gland, and that releases melatonin, and that helps to turn us down. Uh, one idea is that when the, in the lack of, with lack of light, you'll have seasonal affective disorder that you get a lot in Alaska, where the sun goes away for a long time, that you have reduced levels of light, and so then the whole hormonal rhythm gets messed up and um, you get depressed. This is also why having your electronics at night is bad for you because the blue light emitted from cell phones, computers, and TVs um, helps to um, inhibit the release of melatonin. And if you don't have the melatonin, then you can't turn your brain off, and so that's why it keeps you awake. Also, I'll talk about adenosine, which is also important for um, going to sleep. So adenosine, when it's inside cells, is ATP, and as you know, that helps kind of transfer energy around the cell. If you, um, the longer you're awake, you have extracellular levels that increase in the basal forebrain and the cortex. So this increases the longer that you're awake, and then it decreases 
the longer you're asleep. It's kind of a homeostatic regulator. Um, what happens is that this binds to the, to, the, to the receptors and it helps to slow the cell down. So it inhibits arousal. It also kind of widens blood vessels. So the way the caffeine works is that it blocks the adenosine receptors so the cells are not slowed down. They're not slowed down, they're sped up, and this kind of triggers the pituitary that cells are firing, so something's happening, so we should release some adrenaline or epinephrine. And this is why you get pupil dilation and increased heart rate and blood pressure when you have too much caffeine. Um, it also uh, constricts your blood vessels. Sometimes this can help reduce headaches. Um, and it also increases your dopamine levels, so it can affect your mood. So that's why you're so happy and wired after a cup of coffee. Okay, so I'm gonna now talk about um, a couple different sleep disorders. Uh, sleep loss is very detrimental for a number of reasons. Uh, again, if you're not consolidating your memories and you're gonna lose them, uh, depression, weight gain, negative mood, uh, decreased response times, deficit cognitive functioning, again, reduced immune function, and hormonal and, met and metabolic changes. Um, at least 15% of the population suffer from chronic sleep problems. 20% uh, suffer from occasional sleep problems. About a third of those with sleep complaints have a diagnosed uh, psychopathology. Another third has some kind of psychological symptoms that don't quite raise to the level, the threshold for diagnosis, and a third just seem to be independent. Um, but among institutionalized mental patients, about 70% seek help for sleep problems. Um, sleep disorders are categorized um, into four kind of categor categories. You have insomnias, which is just difficulty falling or staying asleep. Narcolepsy, which is when you have excessive daytime sleepiness. Sleep-wake rhythm disorders. And parasomnias, which are behavioral dysfunctions like sleepwalking. So we'll talk about all of these. Um, first, insomnia. There are a lot of different causes for insomnia. Um, one interesting one is that um, you're actually getting fine sleep. You just don't feel as though you're getting good sleep. So 10 to 12% of those um, who ha had the subjective report of, I can't sleep, they actually sleep normally. They get seven hours of sleep and they fall asleep within 15 minutes. Um, there's also some physical events that can affect your sleepiness. Um, so 30% have kind of stereotyped leg movements, restless leg syndrome, your body can't stop moving. So this causes insomnia. Um, also, there's psychophysiological insomnia. So about 50% of insomnia is stress. Um, stress. So what happens is, you're stressed that you can't fall asleep, so then you can't fall asleep because you're stressed. So it's just an awful cycle that keeps going. And the more nights this happens, the more stressed you are that you can't fall asleep. You actually condition yourself to not fall asleep. Um, so what happens is these people often sleep better in a sleep study or in a hotel because it's a different environment. You don't have the contextual cues of the anxiety about not being able to fall asleep. So don't stress about not being able to fall asleep because it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Um, some people with insomnia have uh, less slow wave sleep. Um, so I said before that you feel rested when you have more slow wave sleep. So if you have less slow wave sleep, you won't feel as rested. Um, body temperature is really important. So I talked about um, you know, the rest and digest um, process where you want to cool your body down. You need to be able to have a cooler temperature to sleep well. So a lot of people who have trouble with turning their body temperature down are not able to sleep. That's kind of an autonomic hyperarousal. Um, again, psychopathology. So uh, people with anxiety have difficulty falling asleep. 
people with depression tend to have early awakenings, uh, less slow wave sleep, and they also enter REM too quickly. So they fall asleep into REM 20 to 30 minutes into sleep uh, relative to, to typical people who, who go into REM 80 to 90 minutes in. So again, they're missing their slow wave sleep and so they don't feel as rested. Okay, narcolepsy, um, excessive daytime sleepiness despite being well rested. Um, you are diagnosed with narcolepsy after you have recurrent episodes uh, three times a week for three months. Um, what happens is they are not able to stay awake, they fall asleep for 15 minutes and they feel refreshed. Uh, this is obviously really dangerous if you're driving. Um, these kind of sleeping episodes are accompanied by hallucinations either just before going, going to sleep or waking up. They suffer from sleep paralysis, which is when you're awake and aware, but you can't move. So that could be uh, pretty scary. Also cataplexy, which is have loss of muscle tone. So if you have a very intense emotion, uh, such as laughter or anger, these people will just drop because they lose their muscle tone. Um, the idea behind narcolepsy is that it might be released to decreased um, hypocretin levels in the lateral hypothalamus. And so this can dysregulate your sleep weight uh, cycles. The treatment for narcolepsy uh, is typically just kind of daytime stimulants like amphetamines. Uh, parasomnias are uh, fun and interesting. Uh, this is where you kind of sit up, like walking. Um, you sit up and get out of bed and you kind of walk unsteadily at first, but then you're doing complicated things like going to the refrigerator or going to the bathroom. Uh, you, you might even be talking a little bit, mumbling. And then they have their eyes open, but just kind of blank stare, but they're completely asleep. And they kind of just go back to bed. Uh, they have no memory of the episode. This usually occurs in slow wave sleep. Um, it usually occurs in children. About 17% of children have sleepwalking, about 4% of adults. Uh, bedwetting, um, they used to think this was related to dreaming. So you're dreaming about going to the bathroom and then you go to the bathroom, but that's not actually what's happening. Um, this again, usually occurs in slow wave sleep. Um, it's more likely in boys than girls. About uh, three to six percent of the general population uh, of children have this problem. Uh, Fifteen percent for psychologically disturbed, and thirty percent for institutionalized children. Um, they think that there's kind of a weak or immature brain-bladder connection, so it just is not waking you up enough to go use the bathroom. Um, REM behavior disorder, uh, which is very interesting. So, as I said before, usually when you're in REM sleep. Your motor cortex is kind of going crazy, but your uh, skeletal muscles are usually paralyzed. Sometimes that doesn't happen. And what does happen is that you jump up and act out your dreams. So there are two interesting um, cases um, that I read about. One was this guy who dreamed he was a football player. And he was gonna go tackle somebody. And then he ran head on into his dresser and busted his head open. Um, another one was dreaming about he was in a spy movie and then there was a big explosion. He had to jump out the window to save himself. Uh, the problem is he actually jumped out a second store window uh, that was closed. So there's glass and um, all kinds of broken bones and stuff. So this is clearly a problem. Um, that guy ended up having to sleep in like a really tight sleeping bag so that he can't get out and hurt himself again. Um, so uh, these patients might be violent. Um, they're not violent people when they're awake, but in sleeping, about 85% end up injuring themselves and 44% end up injuring their sleeping partner. So it's dangerous for all involved. Um, 
What they found is about half of them have a brainstem lesion or other kind of neurological problem. They think it might be in the reticular activating system or the RAF nucleus, nuclei. Um, the treatment is anticonvulsants like uh, clonazepam and benzodiazepines. Sleep apnea is another sleep disorder that's very common. Um, this is where you have periodic breathing pauses, and I think it is a suppression of the medullary respiration. Uh, basically what happens is the diaphragm and the muscles become immobile or too relaxed, and then uh, you stop breathing for 15 to 30 seconds. When this happens, the blood oxygen level decreases and carbon dioxide increases. So that then starts stimulating the, rep the respiratory system uh, to start working again. The problem is that the lungs don't fill with air because the throat has collapsed because you lose the muscle tone. Um, and this can happen up to 500 times a night, so it's really bad with uh, losing um, oxygen. Um, they unfortunately think that some version of this might be related to sudden infant death syndrome, uh, where babies just don't wake up. 30% um, of people over the age of 65 have some form of sleep apnea, even if they're not aware of it. Um, and the treatment is um, a CPAP machine, kind of gets passive airflow, kind of keep the air moving. And also weight loss has been uh, found to help uh, reduce sleep apnea. Um, there's also sleep terror disorder. Um, and this is usually happens in children. Um, they have inconsolable terror, so they kind of sit up and they scream for one to two minutes and they're inconsolable, they're, they're sweating, heavy breathing, racing heart, right? Uh, but they don't remember, remember the event at all. Unlike nightmares, where you remember nightmares, night terrors, you don't. Um, so night terrors usually occur in slow wave sleep uh, within 30 minutes of falling asleep, whereas nightmares and dreams usually occur in REM sleep. Um, like I said, this is most common in children, uh, about three to seven years old and it can be triggered by emotional stress, fever, and lack of sleep. This is one reason why it's really important to keep your kids on a routine to make sure they get sleep and they don't get overtired. Um, for adults, you can, this can be treated with benzodiazepines because that suppresses slow wave sleep. Um, and also helps to, they, benzodiazepines can also be used to treat insomniacs by lowering your body temperature. Again, that's really important for helping you go to sleep. Um, the problem is that these are habit forming. So we need to be aware of that. Okay, so um, there's also a lot of sleep disorders observed in those who have traumatic brain injury. Uh, about 30 to 70% of TBI patients complain of some kind of sleep problem. Uh, the most common complaint is insomnia and fatigue and sleepiness. Uh, they most commonly accompany contact injuries that have focal damage or acceleration dece deceleration injuries that have kind of generalized brain uh, damage. Some other specific uh, sleep disorders they have are hypersomnia, so where you're always tired. Uh, this is probably related to damage to the reticular activating formation, the posterior hypothalamus, and the area surrounding the third ventricle. Um, also, we see narcolepsy, but usually only in the first six months after the injury. What happens is there are lower levels of hypocretin. I mentioned that earlier. is important for sleeping. Um, but after six months, it usually resolves as these levels uh, level off. Uh, they also have circadian rhythm dysfunction. If they have damage to the base of the skull affecting the suprachiasmatic super nucleus, as I mentioned before, is really important for regulating the sleep-weight uh, uh, cycle. And then some of them also have the parasomnias, like sleepwalking, as I discussed earlier. Um, some interesting um, connections between ADHD and sleep disorders. So as anyone knows who has 
had uh, less sleep and you had to pull an all-nighter or something, your attention is shot, you can't focus, um, you have lower uh, attention and working memory. Well, they did an experiment where they had um, some children who uh, had restricted sleep like six hours a night for two weeks. And these formerly typical children started having uh, inattention, uh, declined sustained attention, working memory, and reduced behavioral regulation. What does that look like? It looks a lot like ADHD. And so you can induce ADHD symptoms in typical children by reducing their sleep. Also, on the other hand, uh, a lot of kids who have ADHD have comorbid sleeping disturbances. So they have insomnia, sleep disorder breathing, increased uh, nocturnal motor activities, so like I said, restless leg syndrome, parasomnias, delayed sleep-wake disorder. They also spend more time in stage one, which is shallow sleep, and less time in the deep, uh, slow-wave sleep and in REM. Um, and so they have less quality sleep and excessive daytime sleepiness. So you can induce ADHD by restricting sleep, and those who have ADHD also have a less quality sleep. Um, one thought is that they have a shifted chronotype, such that they're more night owls than early birds. And so they had delayed uh, melatonin production, so they don't fall asleep till later. But if school starts really early, then you lose that time to sleep. Um, and so you're not getting as much sleep. So if you shift school times a little bit, that's one way that you can help some kids. However, another way is, of course, with neurofeedback. So Barry Sturman in the 60s did some experiments on opera conditioning in cats. And um, he found that there's a 12 to 15 hertz pattern over the motor strip uh, when they're awake, alert, but motionless. Um, and he said, started training this frequency to, uh, he found that when he used this uh, frequency to train, it increased resistance to seizure, which is great. And then Joel uh, Lubar, which is one of his students, also found that if you train this rhythm, it helped reduce your ADHD symptoms. Um, so what he found is that these ADHD patients uh, tend to have reduced 12 to 15 hertz uh, patterns. So if you could learn to get the brain to produce this, this can also help sleep. And the idea is that if you train this rhythm, it leads to increased sleep spindles. And sleep spindles are um, thought to help you reduce, uh, protect you from waking up from external stimuli. So they help put you down into sleep. Uh, they also found that training this rhythm helps uh, decrease sleep latency, so you're able to fall asleep faster. Uh, you have more total sleep time, and then uh, since you're able to sleep better, then you have it, uh, increased attention afterwards. So interesting connections between ADHD and sleeping and how neurofeedback can help uh, both ADHD symptoms and sleep problems. Um, also, of course, uh, COVID is still a thing. So uh, there's some interesting connections between COVID and sleep. Obviously, um, if you're stressed out about your job or getting corona, then you have this anxiety and then you're not able to fall asleep. Uh, also, if you've had corona, then you might have a lasting effect called chronic fatigue syndrome. So about 50% of COVID survivors report lasting symptoms that last longer than three months. Um, and then of these, about 63% uh, report fatigue and muscle weakness. And then 26 specifically report sleep difficulties. Of the 50%, 10% report lasting chronic fatigue. So this is excessive tiredness and then cognitive dysfunction after exertion that interferes with your ability to perform your daily activities. Some of these are so bad that people can't work anymore. Um, the idea is that this is uh, 
attribute to chronic low-grade low inflammation. So uh, again, kind of the idea behind COVID is that it's just producing just too much inflammation everywhere in your body. It affects all your organs, but specifically your brain and neuroinflammation. So the thought is that this activates the fatigue nucleus, if you will. Uh, essentially, it tells your body that it's under attack and you need to rest so that you can recuperate. And it triggers all these kind of immune responses. Um, the problem is that you know, you're trying to recover and it's trying to, you can't get active again because your body thinks it's always under attack. Um, they also think this might be related to impaired energy production, um, oxidative stress, and then impaired cerebral perfusion of blood. So the inflammation is chronic and it's uh, really detrimental to people who are recovering from COVID. Um, also, just kind of interesting facts about sleep and other animals. Um, Non-human primates um, seem to have sleep patterns that look like humans uh, because we're all just great apes anyway, right? Uh, rodents, smaller animals, and birds, they have two stages, and those two stages look like the human stage four in REM. So they get that deep, slow-wave sleep, and then that active REM sleep. About fifth, for most placental animals, 15 to 20% of your sleep is that REM sleep, as we also see in um, humans. Um, interesting fact, the only man mammal that does not have a REM, or we're not able to identify, is this spiny anteater, this little guy here, um, which is an, actually an egg-laying monotreme. So there's some theories about egg-laying versus placental animals and how REM affects that. Um, the jury's still out. Um, amphibians and reptiles, we think they sleep, but they don't have a neocortex, so we can't do the EEG to see their sleep. Um, so it's hard to know what's really going on there. Um, but I just want to leave you with some thoughts about how you can get better sleep. So you need good sleep hygiene in order to help you fall asleep. You need to manage your sight gabers. Um, so you need to limit activities before going to bed. So it's just some kind of basic guidelines here. Eight hours before you go to bed, coffee. So don't have any coffee eight hours before you go to bed. Five hours before you go to bed, other caffeinated beverages, your sodas and your tea, all that. Four hours before you go to bed, stop your exercising. That gets your body going, it gets your body heat up. That's bad for sleep. Three hours before you go to bed, reduce your alcohol and your heavy meals. Like I said, alcohol reduces that REM sleep. So we don't want that to affect your sleep. So no more alcohol three hours before you go to bed. Two hours before you go to bed, you need to stop work and serious conversations. So we need to get your whole body and brain into a relaxation zone. So you don't want to be thinking and stressed out about that problem at work or you know, an interpersonal problem that you're stressing about. Um, one hour before you go to bed, no more digital devices. No more cell phone, computer, TV. You need to limit the blue lights. And then at bed, completely lights out. It needs to be no lights in the room. It needs to be a very cool room, uh, less than 68 degrees. In order to get your kind of body nice and relaxed, you can take a shower first. You can do that, uh, but don't make it too warm. Because again, you need to get your body temperature warm. You need to have all kind of calming triggers. So if you need to light a lavender ca uh, candle for a little bit, just whatever is going to get you zen and nice and calm, so you're not stressed out. Um, some other tips is you want to go to bed and wake up at the same time every day, even on the weekends. You want to get that kind of circadian rhythm predictable. And then clean out the, the clutter in your bedroom. So you got stuff everywhere, then you're thinking about, I need to fold up laundry, spend the chair for a week. Just make sure your, your bedroom is nice and clutter-free, and that should help you go to sleep.
All right. Thank you very much for your time and attention. This has been Round 11 Sleep. Thank you for joining us today. Feel free to subscribe to the Neuroscience Rounds podcast for future episodes. You might also enjoy our sister podcast, Let's Head On, with myself and Dr. Ann Stevens, where we discuss the interaction between neuroscience, neuropsychology, and physical and mental well-being. Please feel free to reach out to us at integratebrainhealth.com.